Well, good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. I know our hearts are heavy at the home going of Wendell, but I trust that God will give us the strength to direct our attention to his word. John chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's have a word of prayer together. Dear Father, we come to you through Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, and we thank you for the privilege of gathering here together to study your word. We ask that you would help us to be attentive, that you would help us to learn and change, help us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Give me strength and clarity as I Seek to explain your word. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our passage this morning is going to be verses 19 and 20. You can see that down in your bulletin, verses 19 and 20. Why do men reject Christ? Why do men reject Christ? Why do men reject Christ? Have you ever thought about why men reject Christ? Billions and billions of people have lived on this earth, and the great majority of them have renounced, refused, and rejected Jesus Christ. But why? All kinds of people offer all kinds of reasons. Maybe you've ran across some of these people and heard some of these excuses. The intellectual. When considering Christ, he can't confirm the accuracy of the events. He says, show me evidence that God created the world. Show me evidence for Noah's Ark. Show me evidence that Jesus walked on the water. All he asks for is proof. Seems like an honest inquiry. If biblical historical events can't be verified, then how is he supposed to believe? His claim is, there's a lack of evidence. If I only had that, I would believe. But is that really the fundamental reason he won't believe? Next, the postmodernist. When considering Christ, he can't accept the idea that only one person has the truth. He says every religion is basically the same. It teaches the same truths. What's true for me is not necessarily true for you, but we're both right. His claim is, I feel like the truth is relative and everyone should be accepted. If Jesus were that way, I would believe. But is that really the fundamental reason he won't believe? Finally, the nominal professing Christian. When considering Christ, he concludes that his miracles were spectacular and his resurrection was powerful and his teachings were compelling. But he doesn't have any desire to know Christ and love him and obey him. He says, I had the same interests as my buddies and laugh at their jokes. I just try to be nice to people and enjoy my life. But he doesn't want Jesus as Lord. His claim is, I enjoy my life now the way it is. Why should I have to change to go to heaven? Give me a good reason to change and I'll believe in him. But is that really the fundamental reason why he won't believe? So I ask you again, why do men reject Christ? Why do men reject Christ? Why do men reject Christ? And by now you've probably caught on to the title of our message, Why Men Reject Christ. You and I have a responsibility before God to understand our unbelieving neighbor. We must understand who they are, what they do, and what they need. What God says about their desires, what he says about their conduct, and what he says about their needs. If we don't have a good grasp on these things, we will be handicapped in our evangelism, or worse, we might have a defective gospel. If we don't have a good grasp on these things, we will avoid the true need of the sinner. For example, the focus 
in your evangelism could be to prove that God exists. That's a popular approach. If that's the case, you might have to come up with reasons for why the universe is not infinite. If it's not infinite, then there must be an infinite creator who made it. Or you might have to come up with arguments for the existence of God in connection with natural laws and mathematical laws. Who made those laws? Maybe it was God. Or your focus could be to prove that the flood of Noah actually happened. Or that creation, rather than evolution, is true. The subjects that we focus on in evangelism could be endless. But if our aim is to convince someone about fact, we have become distracted from focusing on his true need as a sinner. The true need of a sinner is to understand his sin in light of the cross. If that is not our focus, our evangelism will be handicapped and our gospel could be defective. So why do men reject Christ? Well, John gives us the answer to that question in our passage this morning. So the passage we read a few moments ago, verses uh, chapter 2, verse 23, all the way until chapter 3, verse 21, that gives us our context for this passage. At the end of chapter 2, that's verses 23 to 25, many people believed in Jesus at the Passover feast, but Jesus rejected some of those who believed. Now, beginning in chapter 3, Jesus clearly rejects Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an illustration of somebody who believed, but Jesus rejected him. John presents Nicodemus also as an agent of darkness. John also helps us to see that Nicodemus judges and analyzes Jesus. So let's come to our first point. Jesus rejects Nicodemus because of his unbelief. Jesus rejects Jesus. Excuse excuse me. Jesus rejects Nicodemus because of his unbelief. So let's go back to chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. You might wonder why we're going back to chapter 2. I believe the chapter break in uh, your Bibles is a little misleading. John begins a new section starting in verse 23. The new section begins with Jesus not entrusting himself to people who seem to believe in him. So let's read verses 23 and 24 again. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. We may be surprised at Jesus' response to people who believed in him. He didn't entrust himself to them. In other words, Jesus rejected people with fake faith. Then at the beginning of chapter 3, John introduces someone who has fake faith, Nicodemus. Look at what he says in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The signs are mentioned in verses 23 to 25. And again in verse 2. Nicodemus gives Jesus a statement of commendation, but is connected to his signs. Which points to the fact that 
He was a believer, but he was a fake believer. John points us to the fact that Nicodemus was one of those who believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus didn't receive or accept or save Nicodemus, at least at this point in John's gospel. How do we know that? How do we know that Jesus didn't entrust himself to Nicodemus? Because of two reasons. First, Nicodemus didn't understand the new birth. Look down in verse 10 with me. Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Nicodemus didn't understand because he did not belong to Christ. He wasn't born again. Like a natural man who only understands natural things, he didn't have the ability to accept the things of the Spirit of God because they were folly to him. Second, Nicodemus did not believe. Jesus says in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can I believe? How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? That seems pretty clear. You do not believe. Nicodemus was an unbeliever. Remember that very classic verse. John chapter 3, verse 16. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but they will have eternal life. Well, Nicodemus was on the road to perishing. He didn't have eternal life. Jesus categorizes him as an unbeliever. Now, I realize this is contrary to some of what you've heard about Nicodemus, that he had good intentions, that he was sneaking around in the night because... He was a seeker. But this is true beyond the shadow of a doubt. Jesus makes it crystal clear for us that Nicodemus was an unbeliever. Next point in your outline is Nicodemus comes as an agent of darkness. Nicodemus comes as an agent of darkness. John consistently uses darkness and night throughout his gospel in order to highlight particular truths. In a very special way, he uses darkness and night. So when John gives us the note in chapter 3, verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, um, excuse me, in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. That is very significant. And I want to highlight a few verses in John's gospel that help us to understand that. What does that night mean? Chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, on that verse, the light is positive. It shines. The darkness is negative. It did not overcome. The darkness did not receive the light. The darkness is opposed to the light. And in a very real sense, the darkness is an enemy of the light. Whenever the light shines, the darkness is eliminated. Another reference is chapter 12, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, 
lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Here, Jesus warns that if you fail to walk in the light, the darkness will capture you. The darkness will overtake you. The darkness is also, Jesus says, a realm of ignorance and mindlessness. Chapter 13, verse 30. This is towards the end of the Last Supper. And this is in reference to Judas. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Night was when Judas broke fellowship with the eleven disciples. Night was when Judas defected. Night was when the plan of betrayal was executed. Night was when the son of destruction showed his true colors. And one last verse, 19, chapter 19, verse 39. This is another reference to Nicodemus. There are really only about three references in the Gospel of John to Nicodemus, but this is relevant to our mini-study. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So once Nicodemus came by night, that's John chapter 3, verse 2. And he came without a desire to honor him. Now, Nicodemus comes with myrrh and aloes. A tremendous load, too, 75 pounds. He must have been a strong man. But now Nicodemus comes with myrrh and aloes to honor him in his death. Once, Nicodemus did not believe. Now, he is showing his love for Christ. So John used darkness and night to point to opposition to the light, ignorance, mindlessness, betrayal, and dishonor. Nicodemus was an agent of darkness. Let's move on to our third point. Nicodemus judges and analyzes Jesus. Nicodemus judges and analyzes Jesus. Notice with me in verse 1 that John calls Nicodemus a man of the Pharisees. A man of the Pharisees. What has John already told us about the Pharisees up to this point? You can look with me to your left in chapter 1 and verse 19. First, they came to judge and analyze John. This is what the Pharisees did. They came to judge and analyze John. Verse 19 says, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? John makes it clear in verse 24, if we're confused about who sent these people, who are these Jews? That they are the Pharisees. So these priests and Levites, they pummeled John with questions. Who are you? What then? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Who are you? What do you say about yourself? Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? So 
So first, they come to judge and analyze John. Now, second, they came to judge and analyze Jesus. They didn't do this just to John. They were fairly inclusive. They did this to Jesus, too. Look in chapter 2, verse 18. This is when Jesus had made a whip out of cords and he was driving those money changers out because zeal for his father's house had consumed him. Verse 18 says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? What a challenge. The Pharisees had established themselves as the official judges, and their prejudice was based on their own standard. So when Nicodemus is described in verse 2, or when he says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's essentially saying, Rabbi, we have uh, judged and analyzed you, and we would like you to know the good judgment we have come to. So Nicodemus, as a representative of the Pharisees, gives Jesus an A+. As far as being sent from God. But this is only in the vein of judgment and analysis, not submission and love. So we have seen then Jesus rejects Nicodemus because of unbelief. Nicodemus comes as an agent of darkness, and Nicodemus judges and analyzes Jesus. And remember, Nicodemus was a deeply religious man, drenched in the Bible. I mean, probably memorized whole portions, if not the entire Old Testament. And he was the teacher in Israel. He was, Jeremy would like this, he's the grand woofty. He's the bigwig. But he was blind, dead in his sins, and he was without salvation. So let's come to our passage now as uh, we overflow into chapter 3. Uh, verses 19 and 20. And we're going to have Jesus give us the verdict and the answer to our question, why do men reject Christ? Well, there are two reasons. The first reason is because of their love. The second reason is because of their evil works. So let's read verse 19 again. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The first reason that John gives us for why men reject Christ is because of their love. The desires of your heart cannot be separated from your relationship to Christ. Your first point is the default of their love, rejection. The default of their love, rejection. Who have they rejected? Well, they have rejected the light that has come into the world. Who is the light? Well, back in chapter 1, this is when John uh, talks about the light. The first time, he says, John came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9 says that the light was coming into the world. Verse 10 tells us that this light was rejected by his own people. 
Well, and we all know this. The light is undoubtedly Jesus Christ. Second, why have they rejected Christ? Why have they rejected Christ? People loved the darkness rather than the light. That's the natural condition of man, isn't it? They don't naturally love the light. They love the darkness. Now, it's easy for us to sympathize with some of those people that I mentioned a few moments ago. The intellectual would only believe if only he had more evidence. I mean, all he's asking for is Jesus to appear in front of him and raise somebody from the dead. That's not too hard, is it? The postmodernists would only believe if Jesus was just more inclusive. I mean, come on, wouldn't it glorify God more if he just made everybody obey? Everybody's going to heaven. That's a lot more loving of a God, isn't it? But our text says that their rejection doesn't have to do with the lack of evidence or preferences for a non-discriminatory Jesus. Our text says that their rejection has to do specifically with one thing. Love for the darkness. Think with me about the fact that someone's conduct is always driven by their desires. The murderer's crime of taking someone's life began by hating someone in his heart. The adulterer's unfaithfulness began by lusting after another woman. The thieves' crime of taking possessions that didn't belong to him, that began with covetousness in his heart. Your actions are driven by your desires. Even the fact that you're here this morning, sitting in your seats, well, that proves that you acted on some kind of desire to attend this service. It might have been because you just wanted to be faithful to the RSVP. You said you're coming, so you're just going to come. In the case of the unbeliever, their desire drives their rejection. Within the chambers of their hearts, they possess strong distaste and displeasure of Christ, and that drives them to dismiss him. Think with me also about the fact that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is the unbeliever striving for? What is his goal in life? What is his treasure? Well, if the answer isn't Christ, he's naturally going to be striving against him. Jesus makes it plain in teaching about the treasure in the heart, of course, that's Matthew chapter 6, that everyone has a central love. If I love my wife, and I do, my central, or excuse me, and my desires are for her, and my commitment is exclusively toward her, well, then I will, by implication, refuse devotion to any other woman. If I love my children, and I do, I will seek to not only preserve and protect their lives, but I will also hate anything that threatens the lives of my children. If the unbeliever loves the darkness, then that will naturally lead him to hate Christ. Therefore, he naturally strives and works against him in all that he does. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness. 
How have they rejected Christ? How have they rejected Christ? In what way have they rejected him? First, they have rejected him in a wholesale way. Many people reject Christ. This is an extensive rejection. Notice with me in verse 19 that there are two subjects, light and people. The light comes into the world, but the people of the world refuse the light. John writes later in the chapter, this is in verse 32, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Far and wide, high and low, people have rejected Christ. Second, people reject Christ deliberately. Not only is the rejection extensive, but also it is deliberate. Notice the language with me of verse 19 again. People loved the darkness rather than the light. People don't reject Christ accidentally or by mistake. They don't stumble upon rejection as if it were a crack in the sidewalk or a pothole on the road. People are fully involved and inexcusable in their accountability for their rejection. They actively love the darkness, and they actively refuse the light. The judgment of human history is this. The light has come into the world, and men or people love the darkness because their works were evil. What can you remember when you are evangelizing your unbelieving neighbor? Well, keep three, keep three things in mind. First, a regular response people will give to the gospel is rejection. The exception is true, repentance and faith toward Christ. So most of the times you're going to have rejection. Every now and then you'll have people turn toward Christ in faith. Second, remember the focal point of evangelism is to proclaim the crucified and risen Christ. The focal point cannot and should not be self. We can tend to focus on ourselves if people reject us or they insult us and then we walk away feeling sad. This is not about you. This is about Christ. When you witness people's rejection of Christ, don't think you did anything wrong. You proclaim the truth, you're a faithful messenger, and if they turn their noses up at you, then God is ultimately concerned with his son being proclaimed rather than our happiness. Third, remember that no matter what arguments people give for rejecting Christ, whether it be, I just need more evidence, or give me a reason to change, come on. The scripture clearly declares that the real reason for the rejection is love for the darkness. Don't be deceived into thinking that their quote-unquote honest inquiries of evidence and other things is the reason. No, men love, the sin, men love their sin and they love corruption. That's the, the engine that powers their vehicles of rejection. 
So if we want to focus on something in evangelism, focus on the desires of their hearts. Deal with their sin. So we've seen the default of their love, rejection. Now let's move on to the next point in your outline. The object of their love, the darkness. The object of their love, the darkness. Why the object of their love? A common statement is after one's own heart. Of course, that's taken from David. David was a man after God's own heart, but people just cut the God and David out, part of it out. That can be attributed to the effect that darkness has on the unbeliever. After one's own heart. What is the darkness? It's after the unbeliever's heart. For the unbeliever, their volition, their will, their preference is the darkness. The aim in their lives is to remain in the darkness and never come to the light. So later in John in chapter 8, Jesus deals really with the uh, centerpiece of the Jews' hearts. He says, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. The focal point of those Jews' hearts was to do the desires of the devil. That's the same case with everyone who loves the darkness rather than the light. Second, what is the darkness? What is the darkness? Well, the darkness is all that is anti-truth, wickedness, moral corruption, sin. And notice with me that the darkness is not given a a description. It's not... John doesn't say, well, the darkness is only murder. The darkness is only theft. The darkness is only blasphemy, as if he were establishing some kind of list of cardinal sins. No. The darkness is general. The darkness is a wide net that has the ability to catch a wide variety of sins. Darkness is trying to keep the rules only when your boss is nearby. Or secretly coveting the house or truck that your neighbor keeps talking about. Darkness is having selfish motives in parenting. Ignoring disobedient children because to deal with that would be cutting into your free time. Darkness is avoiding confession of your sins because you you think that would be embarrassing. Darkness is to live by your own standard and for your own approval. What's a takeaway from this? Well, remember the dangers of walking in the darkness. We're not there. We don't walk in the darkness. We walk in the light. We are children of the light. But our whole entire lives as believers, we will struggle against the darkness. Well, what can prepare us for that struggle? First, we need to understand that the struggle begins with our desires. We need our hearts to be changed. We need to be sanctified. We need to have our minds conformed to the mind of God. Second, we need to take advantage of the resources that God has given us. We need to lean on God in prayer. We need to lean on His Word. We need to lean on brothers and sisters in our body that sharpen and challenge us. That's going to help us to be pointed towards the light, be pointed towards the truth pointed towards Christ. Third, we should remember that darkness has a controlling effect. 
Yes, if you are a child of God, you've been delivered from the darkness. That's true. It's, it's an established fact. You're never going to be captured or overtaken by the darkness. But don't be deceived into thinking that you will remain unaffected if you play around with it. The nature of darkness stays the same regardless of your condition before God. Just like a little uh, moldy cheese in the refrigerator. Well, it stays the same if you um, eat it one day, get sick, and then the next day you go back to it, you're going to get sick again. The nature of darkness remains the same. So if you choose to dabble in disobedience, remember that God is not going to be mocked. Whatever you sow, that you will also reap. The effects are many for those who do such things. I mean, the scripture is clear about people who play around with sin. They have loss of fellowship with other believers. They have strife in the home. They have a guilty conscience, hindered prayers. And even some people die if they play around with the darkness. So darkness is dangerous. And if we would be wise, we would stay far away from it. So now we've seen the object of their love, the darkness. Let's move on to our third point, the root of their love, evil works. The root of their love, evil works. John gives us the reason why unbelievers reject Christ and love the darkness. It's because their works were evil. This is the motivating factor for renouncing Christ. If you come upon a peach tree and it's bearing fruit, and then you tested the soil, well, you're going to find out that there are, going to, there are going to be nutrients in that soil that provide the necess- or that are the necessary nutrients for bearing that fruit. In the same way, the fruit of rejecting Christ has its taproots in evil works. Christ came as light into the world in order to transform men's behaviors, to take away their sins. But they have chosen to reject Christ because they want to maintain their wicked behavior. If they love Christ, they know that their wicked behavior will be crucified. But they don't want that. Like a shoplifter who doesn't want to get caught looking around to make sure there are no undercover policemen watching him, so is the sinner who doesn't want the reprimands of Christ. One thing that we can take away from this is remember where you came from. Before the Lord Jesus Christ transformed your heart, you sought the protection of your sinful life. But now, since you love the light and hate the darkness, you are protecting, you are seeking to protect your godly life. So how do you do that? How do you protect your godly life? How do you maintain it and preserve it and nourish it? First, expose yourself to the light of truth on a regular basis. Study and learn the Word of God so that your mind will be sharpened and calibrated to the mind of God. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word illuminates our pathway to guide us in life. Second, allow the light to impact your relationships with other believers. 1 John 2, 7 says, Whoever loves 
the light, excuse me, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. The effect of light toward other believers is love. So stir that up, stir up love among other believers. So we've seen the first reason why men reject Christ, because of their love. Now, the third point in your outline, the second reason is because of their evil works. Because of their evil works. The first point, well, let's read verse 20. Again, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Your first point is the universality of their evil works. The universality of their evil works. John writes, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. In verse 19, we learn that people love the darkness because their works were evil. Now, we learn that everyone who does wicked things hates the light. The person who rejects Christ but has a righteous life doesn't exist. Universality is a natural product of darkness. Just as it is true that tomato plants will produce tomatoes and dogs will beget dogs, it is just as true that everyone who does wicked things will hate the light. That means your friendly Hindu worker, co-worker who rejects Christ is a doer of wicked things no matter how nice he is. And your mom or your dad who raised you and cared for you, and according to the standards of society, they might be decent people, but the Word of God says that the reason why they reject Christ is because of their wicked works. This universality also is a precursor to judgment. Now, in verse 20, we learn that there are only one of two categories that people are in. The one category is doers of wicked things. The other category is doers of good things. Remember the reason why people do wicked things is because they love the darkness. The reason why people do good things is because of their love for God. It's an internal reason. It's, as we've talked about before, the desires of the heart. How people behave is a result of what they love. So currently, there's a great divide between those who love the darkness and those who love God. And God will make a great divide on the day of judgment. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So now that we've seen the universality of their evil works, let's move on to our second point, 3B, the fruits of their evil works. The fruits of their evil works. There are two fruits that John pinpoints in verse 20. The first one is hatred of Christ. Hatred of Christ. You might ask the question, why would unbelievers have such animosity toward Christ or against Christ? 
Well, we find that answer out later on in John's gospel. Jesus says to his brothers in John chapter 7, verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Specifically, Christ testifies that the world's works are evil. They hate him because of the indictment he has pronounced upon them. Then the extent of this hatred. So the reason for this hatred is because of Christ's indictment on them. The extent of this hatred is that it just doesn't stop at Christ. It extends to the Father. It extends to the people of Christ. John chapter 15, verse 23, Jesus says, Whoever hates me hates my Father also. He says a few verses before that, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So this hatred extends beyond the the bound of just Christ. It really is hatred of anything and everything that has to do with the light. The second fruit is stubborn unrepentance. Stubborn unrepentance. John says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. The unbeliever proactively hates Christ and he refuses to come to him. First reason why they are so unrepentant is because they are bound to their desires. In the heart of the unbeliever, there is a real and established commitment to devote himself to sin. He doesn't want to obey Christ. If he doesn't want to render obedience to Christ, then his desires obstruct any possibility of salvation. So really, it just comes down to the desires. If your desires are to know God and to love him, well, he's given you a new heart. If your desires are to reject him and to resist his authority, then that bears witness to your hard heart. Not only is he bound to his desires, but he's also unable without the Father drawing him. Jesus says later on in the Gospel of John, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus stresses this point that the Father has to draw people if they are going to come. He also says basically the same thing to Nicodemus in chapter 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're given a new heart, unless God does an internal work in you to draw you, you won't come. Let's move on to our second point, the protection of their evil works. The protection of their evil works. The one who rejects Christ doesn't want his deeds exposed. He desires to prevent exposure and protect his life. The natural result of coming to Christ is that your deeds will be exposed. You're going to be found out for who you really are. Yes, that we're all horrible people and we all deserve to go to hell. But that's, of course, when 
the mercy and the grace of God is magnified. Let me give you two implications of that statement, lest their deeds be exposed. I think at least two things are going on there, and at least two things, those two things are, first, to delude themselves about sin, to delude themselves about sin. The unbeliever doesn't want to be confronted with the true state of themselves in the world. They don't want to believe that the world is full of sin, and they don't want to believe that they are full of sin. They don't want to admit that they need a Savior. They say the world has good people, and they want to be the final interpreters of their sin and their sins around them. Second, they don't want to be confronted with their accusing past. They don't want to look at what they have done and come to accountability for it. Second, they want to maintain their position as judges. They want to maintain their position as judges. The unbeliever wants to call the shots in his life rather than Christ. And there are at least three ways the unbeliever solidifies himself as judge in his life. And we'll go through, through these quickly. Um, first, he resists the authority of Christ to judge. Christ determines what is right and wrong if he would come to him. If the unbeliever would come to Christ, then he would have to submit to Christ's determination of what is right and wrong. Second, he resists the authority of Christ to rule. He would have to come under the lordship of Christ. And third, he resists the authority of Christ to justify. And I'm only using justify in the sense of making right. Christ is going to make somebody right if they would come to him. Christ is going to change his desires. He's going to cause him to love the light. In other words, he'll, he's going to justify him. He's going to make him right. So why do men reject Christ? It's not for factual reasons or reasons of subjectivity or preference. It's because they of their love and it's because of their evil works. So if we want to be effective in our evangelism and equipped in our thinking, we have to understand who the unbeliever is, what they do, and what they need. Our gospel has to be one that exposes sin, deals with wickedness, and helps the sinner to understand that his behavior is intimately tied to his desires. And the road to the cross is paved with these truths. The gospel cannot be proclaimed unless we highlight these things. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this passage uh, this morning that John has provided to us, that you have provided to us. Thank you that it helps us to understand the true matters of uh, a sinner's heart. And really, these were our issues before you saved us and transformed us. Help us now to take these truths and uh, apply them to speak kindly and lovingly to our unbelieving neighbor and reflect upon the fact that 
we once were like this, but now we have been changed to love you and obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.